Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories today. The IDF continues to strike terrorist targets in Gaza as a UN food agency pauses deliveries into the region. Plus, a shooting near Jerusalem leaves at least one person dead and several wounded. James Biden testifies before lawmakers in the GOP-led impeachment inquiry into his brother, President Biden. More on the closed-door interview and reactions from House panel members. It's been over four years since his death, yet disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein continues to make headlines. A bill related to his case records now heading to the Florida governor's desk. Over a billion dollars wiped out in student loans. What President Biden's latest move means for students and taxpayers. A controversial New York City law that would have allowed non-citizens to vote in local elections struck down. What an appeals court had to say about it. Google rolling out its new AI bot, Gemini. It's able to generate images when prompted, but now facing backlash over racial bias. The details with the host of Entity Business. What do George Washington, the world's biggest stock marketplace and one of the first terrorist attacks on the U.S. have in common? Wall Street and Broad Street, we take you there. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Thursday, February 22nd, and there is news coming out of Israel this morning. There was an attack right outside Jerusalem. Yeah, three Palestinian gunmen reportedly used automatic weapons to open fire on Israelis stuck in traffic ahead of a checkpoint. Right, and that had one Israeli man um, killed and 11 more wounded. Yeah, the threat's been neutralized, but the city in which he died said he was a Torah-observant young man who served in the army and was loved by all for his moral values. Right. And of course, our hearts go out to the victims and the families. Um, hopefully, they all recover soon. So today's top news is from Israel. Israel's defense forces yesterday reported striking several targets throughout the Gaza Strip over a 24-hour period. And the fighting may soon spread to the south. An Israeli official gave new details of Israel's plan to battle Hamas in the crowded city of Rafah. Entity's Jason Perry has the details, and a warning, this report contains images some viewers may find disturbing. On Wednesday, Israel Defense Forces released footage that shows them striking several terrorists in the northern Gaza Strip, including this terrorist who was hit as he was charging towards Israeli troops. And another was struck after he reportedly fired mortars into Israel, which landed in an open area. No injuries were reported. And in central Gaza, residents in Deir al-Bala gathered around what was left of a vehicle that had been hit by an apparent Israeli airstrike. I was at the tire repair shop and we were surprised by this car that was close by. They hit it with a rocket from a drone, then they hit it again. They struck it twice. And in southern Gaza, residents in Rafa gathered around another car that had been hit by an apparent Israeli airstrike. 
And in another part of Rafa, residents rummaged through the remains of a house that was hit by an overnight strike. There is no safe place in Rafa. People are being displaced to Rafa. Everyone around us and our neighbors are displaced, but there is no safe place in Rafa. Rafa is now home to over one million people, many of whom have been displaced from central and northern Gaza and are now living in tents in this southern Gaza city. Israel says Rafa is the final stronghold for Hamas terrorists, and the IDF is planning to conduct military operations in the crowded city in a few weeks during Ramadan. That's if Hamas does not release the hostages before the Islamic month of fasting. On Wednesday, Israeli War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz gave an update on the latest hostage negotiations. There are promising early signs of possible progress. We will not stop looking for a way, and we will not miss any opportunity to bring our girls and boys home. He also said that Israel would evacuate the population from Rafah before conducting military operations there. And he added this. The importance of clearing Rafah lies in the ability to hit Hamas forces operating there and in the need to demilitarize the Gaza Strip. And across Israel's northeastern border, state-run media in Syria said an Israeli airstrike hit a residential building in Damascus, killing two people. Israel has previously reported striking Hezbollah targets in Syria, but the Israeli military did not immediately comment on this strike. Jason Perry, NTD News. And the United Nations World Food Program has suspended deliveries into northern Gaza, citing complete chaos and violence due to the collapse of civil order. The agency said deliveries will only resume if conditions allow for a safer distribution. For more on the war in Gaza, we bring in David Wormser. He's an analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Good morning, David. So first, let's talk about that aid and that many that Gazans are dependent on. So the World Food Program just announced the pause. And before this, UNRWA had lost its funding. Tell me more about the impact that these two things or situations have on Gazans. Well, thank you, Evelyn. Excellent question. Well, uh, it, what it means is that slowly you're seeing the transition from the international organization structure that had been in Gaza and distributing food, but it was uh, really under the thumb of Hamas and in the case of UNRWA, even complicitous with Hamas, as were some of these other organizations. So the food wasn't really getting to the people, it was getting to Hamas. And then Hamas would resell the free donated food to make a profit and to fund its war machine. So what you're seeing is a transition from that structure to a new structure that the Israelis are beginning to set up uh, and that they will distribute that will circumvent, obviously, Hamas and the whole, whole system. But there's a lot of anger in Hamas. So they're attacking the remaining structures of third world or uh, third uh, uh, third-party organizations operating in Gaza. And uh, they, they, they're attacking them because the, those organizations don't want to give the food anymore to Hamas. They want to give it straight to the people. So there was some shooting, there was some shootouts, there was a lot of uh, beating up of Palestinians by, the, by Hamas uh, because they prefer to have a humanitarian crisis and they don't want these organizations able to distribute the food. So in that state of chaos, uh, you're, we're looking more and more toward the Israelis to set up this structure that will deliver the food, and they're beginning to. So it's a matter of uh, a transitional period. 
but it's and not going to look very pretty in, uh, as Hamas is fighting uh, the the new structure. Right, as we have seen with the uh, the last um, the last delivery there. But incredibly interesting insight here. I also want to talk about uh, post-war Gaza. Um, can you just start by? explaining more about the moving parts that play into a possible pathway to a two-state solution or general post-war solution. Um, give us a bit more insight into the complexities there. Well, the Israeli parliament yesterday voted against a, a Palestinian state, uh, 99 out of 120 seats, and, and of which about 10 to 15 are Arab seats anyway. So literally 80 to 90 percent of the eighty plus percent of the parliament, which includes Arabs, voted against the Palestinian state. I think what it means is that there has to be some other formula found for Gaza and ultimately even for the West Bank afterwards, Judea and Samaria afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're going to see is a much heavier emphasis on the Israelis, first of all, of maintaining full security control of both uh, the West Bank and Gaza, namely that they can go in whenever they need to, to arrest terrorists, hot pursuit, etc. But locally turn over governance to clans, to local authorities, traditional leadership of the, or of the area. Hamas was a very revolutionary organization, as is the Palestinian, uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, which runs the uh, West Bank. They're revolutionary, very anti-traditional uh, leadership there. So the Israelis are turning to them, and it's not a national government, but I think you'll see sort of local government uh, structures emerging under the Israelis for self-governance, which eventually can turn into something, but probably not a state, more like a, a confederation of emirates or something like that. But the Israelis don't want to run the lives of the Palestinians, but they don't want Hamas or these other organizations to run it either. Interesting. So how large of a role do you think, just quickly before we wrap up, how large of a role do you think the international community should or can play to arrive um, or create this pathway to a solution like that, like the U.S. or European countries? Well, I think the Arab world, which has always been there, uh, supporting the Palestinians now needs to really step up to the plate with the pocketbook and they need to help reconstruct Gaza. The, Gaza has a lot of resources. Gaza's got a lot of potential, uh, both in terms of tourism, but also, you know, there's gas offshore Gaza that was held up for the last 20 years because the PLO, one terrorist organization, was fighting with Hamas, the other terrorist organization, who in fact owns it. And the Israelis didn't want it developed because it was an independent source of money that would go to Hamas to fund their terrorist structure. Mm -hmm. So now that Hamas is gone, the Israelis would run Gaza. Probably one of the first things that would happen is the development of the offshore gas fields, which would be a tremendous revenue flow to the Palestinians in, in Gaza and can really begin to create development. But the Israelis also have to maintain control of the educational system for a while because it's been educated into murdering Jews, uh, six-year-olds, five-year-olds, so forth. So the Israelis really have a lot of work. They need a lot of help from the international community to set up new schools with new teachers uh, and new curricula. The Arab world, uh, like the UAE, can help in that. And uh, as far as money and industry goes, I think the, the money that will come from, from both tourism once things start getting rebuilt and gas once those fields are developed, uh, offer a lot of potential for the right. territory. Understood. Well, thank you so much, David Wormser. I appreciate your time as always. Thank you.
Back in the U.S., President Biden's brother, James Biden, testified before lawmakers yesterday. The eight-hour-long closed-door interview was part of the GOP-led panel impeachment inquiry into the president. That's over whether he was involved in the family's foreign business dealings or alleged influence peddling. James Biden reportedly testified in his opening statement there was never any involvement or any financial interest in his business ventures from his older brother, and that during his 50-year career, he always relied on his own talent, skills, and personal relationships, and never his status as Joe Biden's brother. Republican investigators say some of his deposition contradicts that, and that he made efforts to avoid directly answering questions. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the testimony in response. James Biden, in a statement Wednesday, said there is no basis for this inquiry to continue and that his appearance would give committees the information to dispel negative assumptions about his relationship with his brother. House Republicans allege President Biden and his family improperly profited from policy decisions Biden had a part in as VP during the Obama administration and are looking for any involvement in the family's foreign business dealings. The younger Biden testified his brother has no involvement in his business, none. The closed-door interview comes just days after DOJ Special Counsel David Weiss charged former FBI informant Alexander Smirnov of fabricating a multi-million dollar bribery scheme about the president, his son Hunter Biden, and a Ukrainian energy company. Prosecutors say Smirnov admitted to contacts with officials associated with Russian intelligence and are fighting to put him back behind bars while he awaits trial. He hasn't entered a plea yet. Congressman Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, says the indictment is reason to shut the probe down. He called the investigation a wild goose chase and says it's time to fold up the circus tent. It appears like the whole thing is not only obviously false and fraud fraudulent, but a product of Russian disinformation and propaganda. Representative William Timmons says he finds it convenient prosecutors are only charging Smirnov now for statements he made in 2020. They've indicted the confidential source that they trusted for years and made, uh, paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan says the FBI saw Smirnov as a valued source for years, and his indictment doesn't change the underlying facts of the panel's investigation. Hunter Biden makes a call. Devin Archer told us he made a call to his dad, to Joe Biden. And then three days later, uh, Joe Biden goes to Ukraine and conditions the release of American tax money on the firing of the prosecutor applying the pressure to the company that Hunter Biden set on the board of. Those facts, they don't change what, regardless of what this, uh, this confidential human source has said. First son Hunter Biden is set to testify next Wednesday before the GOP-led House panel. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In a unanimous vote, the Florida Senate passed a bill that would authorize the disclosure of documents concerning convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. The documents in question were part of a 2006 Florida grand jury inquiry into the now-deceased financier. The new legislation broadens the criteria for the release of evidence or testimony from a grand jury. The Florida House of Representatives also unanimously passed the bill last week. Governor Ron DeSantis wrote on X that he'll sign the bill into law. He says all files related to Jeffrey Epstein's criminal activity should be made public and criticized the federal government for continuing to, in his words, stonewall accountability. The president wiping out another $1.2 billion in student debt as he appeals to young voters. But Republicans say it's forcing taxpayers to foot the bill. Entity's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. 
The White House announced on Wednesday that it's canceling another $1.2 billion in student debt for over 150,000 borrowers. There are people who borrowed less than $12,000 to begin with and have been paying back their loans for at least 10 years. And President Biden, who's on a fundraising trip to California, says it will provide some breathing room to these Americans. When people in student debt, are re student debt relief, they buy homes. They start businesses, they contribute, they engage in the community in ways they weren't able to before. It actually grows the economy. The new announcement comes as Biden's trying to appeal to younger voters. It's also the latest move in administration's piecemeal strategy to cancel student debt after the Supreme Court last year struck down an even more sprawling and expensive plan. To date, Biden's wiped out over $130 billion in student debt for about 4 million borrowers. But Republicans have been criticizing Biden's strategy and saying it's not actually helping to improve most Americans' lives. Republican Senator Joni Ernst on Wednesday accused Biden of enacting socialist schemes, adding that taxpayers shouldn't have to foot the bill for a billion-dollar student loan bailout. And Congressman Matt Rosendell called it a slap in the face to responsible Americans who pay back their loans. The White House, meanwhile, is vowing to cancel even more student debt, adding that it's going to leave no stone unturned to find ways to do it. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Stay with us. Former President Trump asking for a one-month delay in enforcing the $355 million civil fraud ruling against him. What his lawyers are saying. Democrats ramp up attacks against independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. How his campaign is responding. A New York appeals court rules on a controversial law that would allow non-citizens to vote even if they entered the country illegally. Details on that decision and how it came about coming up. Good to have you back. Former President Trump is asking New York Supreme Court Judge Arthur Angoran to delay enforcing the $355 million civil fraud ruling against him for one month. In a letter to the judge yesterday, Trump's attorneys accused New York Attorney General Letitia James of rushing to enforce the judgment. She submitted a proposal for the judge to sign just days after the ruling. Trump has 30 days from when a judgment is entered to post bond and appeal. He was ordered to pay $355 million plus interest for fraudulently inflating the values of his properties. He was also banned from acting as an officer of any New York business for three years. In a separate letter on Wednesday, Trump's lawyers argued the former president was denied the chance to speak against the ruling before the judge filed it. They want enough time to submit a proposed counterjudgment. In Georgia, the Fulton County Board of Ethics confirmed yesterday it will take up multiple complaints against District Attorney Fonnie Willis. It's at a special meeting on possible ethics violations in the second week of March. Members of the public are welcome to attend. Two specific complaints are listed in the board's letter. Greg Mantle with the investigative news service on Substack filed several last month. He wants to see Willis's expense reports for 2021 to 2023. He also asked to see special counsel Nathan Wade's contracts during that time and other related records. 
His complaints stem from a motion filed by Trump co-defendant Michael Roman to disqualify Willis in the Georgia election case. The Trump prosecutor is accused of financially benefiting from a relationship with Wade. Both testified last week denying allegations of any impropriety. The board's letter lists another individual named Stephen Kramer for the other complaint. A Kinnipiac University poll released today, yesterday shows President Biden narrowly leading Trump in a November rematch. But voters are concerned about Biden's age. 49% of voters polled favor Biden in the upcoming election, while 47% support Trump. 67% of voters say Biden is too old for a second term in office, while 57% say Trump is not too old to serve again. 34% believe Biden is mentally fit, compared to 48% who believe Trump is mentally fit. The poll surveyed over 1,400 registered voters nationwide last week. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s run for the White House getting the attention of Washington Democrats. In a recent campaign, the DNC attempted to tie the independent candidate to a MAGA donor who also gave money to former President Trump. On the campaign trail, independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is making a pitch to black voters disillusioned by the Democratic establishment. There's a lot of black voters in this country who've been voting who are taking uh, for granted by the Democratic Party. But outside Kennedy events, billboards linking the candidate to MAGA Republicans, paid for by the Democratic National Committee. President Biden's allies at the DNC have recently ramped up efforts to undercut Kennedy's candidacy. Earlier this month, the committee filed a complaint with the FEC accusing Kennedy's campaign and a super PAC supporting him of illegal coordination. Kennedy says this shows he's shaking things up in Washington. I think both Republicans and Democrats, the infrastructure and the leadership are, of course, going to be worried. Earlier in January, it was reported that a mega donor backing Republican frontrunner Donald Trump also donated to Kennedy's campaign. Timothy Mellon, heir to the Mellon banking fortune, reportedly gave $10 million to American Values 2024, the super PAC funding Kennedy. Kennedy drew flack recently at the Super Bowl when the same pack showed a $7 million campaign ad that repurposed elements from his uncle John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign. In response, American Values published a statement on their website Wednesday. They refuted claims by the DNC that the ad was bought and paid for by Trump's largest donor, Tim Mellon, and said the ad's idea, funding, and execution came primarily from Nicole Shanahan, a Democratic donor who contributed to Biden's 2020 campaign. The ad also garnered criticism from some members of RFK Jr.'s family. One member of my family whose feelings were hurt by that ad, and I apologized. I, I said that I was sorry that he felt that way. But I have no apologies about the ad. I think the ad was a good ad. While early polling shows significant levels of interest in Kennedy as an alternative to a 2020 rematch, it's difficult to know exactly how much of a threat Kennedy poses to Biden. Continuing on RFK Jr.'s campaign, something unheard of happened. The super PAC that supports him returned almost all of a $10 million donation. American Values gave back the donation from well-known private security executive Gavin DeBecker. Greg Holman, a government affairs lobbyist at Public Citizen, explained to me why this likely happened. 
it's an artificial image to try to give the American Valley Super PAC and RFK Jr. a false image of actually gaining momentum in his bid uh, for his independent candidacy for the president. The American Valley Super PAC and RFK have not been doing well in terms of their independent candidacy for the presidency. As a matter of fact, the Super PAC only raised and spent a total of $16 million all last year. And that's peanuts when it comes to raising and spending money for a presidential campaign. Uh, there was one very wealthy backer, Gavin DeBecker, who gave $10 million to the Super PAC with the arrangement that the money just be used for an image, making it look like the Super PAC was actually $10 million richer, but then later to return the money to Gavin uh, DeBecker afterwards. That, that creates, is really right. It creates this false veneer that the super PAC is actually gaining momentum, and that was the whole purpose. Once once that happened, you know, the super PAC started raising more money because people are thinking, hey, maybe this RFK Jr. candidacy is real, and so started pumping money into the super PAC. But uh, you know, almost all of that ten million was just returned shortly afterwards. So what does Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign need contributions for primarily right now? Uh, he's trying to get on the ballot. He's defected from the Democratic Party, so he's running as an independent. That means he has to go in each state and petition to try to qualify to get on the ballot. And that costs a lot of money. I mean, the last I looked, he was only in one state, the state of Utah. And so American uh, Family Values Super PAC is spending a lot of money trying to do this petitioning in multiple states to get them on the ballot. This costs money, and it so far isn't going that very well for RFK. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Craig Holman, government affairs lobbyist at Public Citizen. Yes, a pleasure. A New York appeals court struck down a law yesterday that would have let certain non-citizens vote in local elections, including those for mayor and city council. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the court's decision. A state appeals court declared the law unconstitutional. The Our City, Our Vote law says that anyone with a green card or work authorization who has been in the city for at least 30 days can vote in municipal elections. It was first passed in December 2021 by the Democrat-controlled New York City Council. It would have resulted in around 800,000 newly eligible voters in a city with less than 5 million active registered voters. Progressive Democrats who championed the law argued it would make U.S. politics more inclusive by allowing immigrants without citizenship to vote. Opponents of the bill, mainly New York Republicans, argued it would undermine the integrity of elections and dilute the power of U.S. citizens' votes. Republican Congressman Nick Langworthy and a handful of other plaintiffs challenged the law in court in 2022. Months later, it was struck down. Judge Ralph Porzio of the New York State Supreme Court for Staten Island ruled that the law violated the state constitution, which states that every citizen is entitled to vote. New York City Mayor Eric Adams' administration defended the law and appealed the lower court ruling. Wednesday's appeals court decision has dealt a blow to those efforts. It's unclear whether Mayor Adams' office intends to file an appeal. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
He went from TV to politics. Former CNN anchor John Avalon is the latest to try to make that leap. The political analyst announced yesterday he'll make a run at a seat in Congress as a Democrat in New York. He said he aims to defeat Donald Trump and his MAGA followers. The former CNN analyst posted on X that American democracy is in danger. Avalon says he'll work to protect abortion access and fight against climate change if he wins. He also said he aims to rebuild the middle class. Avalon left CNN earlier this month. He had worked at the network since 2018. Coming up, companies helping illegal immigrants come to the U.S. could soon find themselves in trouble. Hear about a new State Department policy. A Japanese Yakuza leader has been indicted by federal prosecutors for allegedly trying to smuggle nuclear materials. More details about his capture. Fallout from last week's landmark Alabama Supreme Court ruling has begun. Hear why Alabama's biggest hospital has put in vitro fertilization procedures on hold when we come back. Thanks for staying with us. U.S. officials are warning Americans not to travel to Russia after a dual U.S.-Russia citizen was arrested there this month. She now faces up to 20 years in prison. Xenia Karolina, a ballet dancer, was visiting Russia for the first time in several years when she was arrested. She's been charged with treason. Her employer said all she did was allegedly donate $51.80 to Ukrainian charity in the U.S. Russian officials said Karolina took part in what they called public actions to support the Kyiv regime. Because she is a dual citizen, analysts say the Russian state will not recognize her U.S. citizenship. This will make it harder for her to return to America. She's so kind. She sees the good in everyone, believe me. She doesn't watch the news. She doesn't intervene with, with anything about the war. Knowing Ksenia is, that's the difficult part is, I know who she is. She's, she's so full of life. She needs to be out there. She, in, in the sense of she needs to be with her friends. She needs to live life because she, lo she loves life. Federal prosecutors in New York have indicted a Japanese gang leader for allegedly conspiring to smuggle nuclear materials from Myanmar to other countries. According to the Justice Department, Takeshi Ebisawa, a Yakuza leader, conspired to transport these materials believing they would be used by Iran to develop nuclear weapons. It is reported that Ebisawa flexed the samples to a U.S. undercover agent in Thailand Officials then seized the sample and handed it over to law enforcement. The DOJ said the materials contain uranium and weapons-grade plutonium. The suspect had already been charged in 2022 for drug trafficking and firearm offenses. Both him and his co-defendant were arrested and detained in New York. Both of them pleaded not guilty. The State Department has announced a new visa restriction policy targeting companies facilitating illegal immigration. It intends to punish the owners and operators of charter companies that organize flights, ground transportation and maritime vessels into the United States. The State Department is implementing the policy under powers granted by the Immigration and Nationality Act. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said yesterday that migrants who try to reach the U.S. illegally often pay extortion-level prices and put themselves and occupying family members at risk.
these visa restrictions could be used to block entry into the United States by individuals deemed to be in violation of the stated policy. And two years after cinematographer Helena, Helena Hutchins was fatally shot in the set of Rust, the film's weapons handler will go on trial today. The case may have implications for actor Alec Baldwin, who was also charged after a prop gun went off, killing Hutchins. Armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed has pleaded not guilty to involuntary manslaughter. The prosecution says as chief weapons expert on set, she was responsible for loading Baldwin's prop gun, Baldwin's prop gun with a live bullet. She also faces charges of tampering with evidence, to which she also pled not guilty. If convicted, she faces up to three years in prison. The jury was sworn in yesterday. Opening statements are expected today. And we're already seeing consequences from the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling that found frozen embryos are children. The University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System is pausing in vitro fertilization treatment while it evaluates the court's decision. It's the first organization in the state to confirm it's putting such treatments on hold after the landmark ruling. Administrators are worried patients and doctors could be criminally prosecuted or face punitive damages based on the decision released last Friday. The ruling doesn't prohibit IVF, but opens up medical providers to wrongful death claims related to the embryos involved. Critics say the ruling could also make fertility treatment unaffordable for many families and force parents to pay lifelong storage fees for embryos they can't legally discard. And in Southern California, the Los Angeles River is usually dry, car washes are open, and every day is generally a good day for a swim. This month has been different, however, as weather-soaked Angelinos long for a return for, to sunshine, blue skies, and warm temperatures. And today's Bill Thomas finally stows his umbrella and checks in with this report. A strange sight in L.A. on Wednesday as a bright orange orb appeared in the sky. It was the sun, bringing a warm welcome to locals who have grown tired of clouds, wind, and rain. Lots and lots of rain. February is far from over, but currently, this month is now one of the wettest months ever recorded in downtown Los Angeles, with more than 12 and a half inches of rain reported so far. The most recent storm dropped just under two inches of rain in the Southland, making it the fourth wettest February in downtown L.A. since 1877, and that's when rainfall records were first reported. According to the National Weather Service, current rainfall levels are impressive, but 26 years ago, February 1998, was the wettest February on record with 13.68 inches of rain. But wait, it gets better and wetter. The wettest month ever recorded was December 1889 when 15.8 inches of rain fell, drenching the city of Angels. The numbers are impressive, and this is only the 10th month with a foot or more of rain recorded in downtown Los Angeles. In a normally drought-stricken region, the above-average amount of rainfall in Los Angeles is appreciated by folks who cherish their green lawns, time spent lounging at the pool, and long evening walks around the neighborhood, and all without having to lug around an umbrella. Bill Thomas, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up, Google's AI chatbot is facing backlash from online users. This is after some perceived a racial bias. We talked to Entity Business host Don Ma about this. 
A Boeing top executive has been removed. This as safety concerns loom over a terrifying mid-air incident in January. Get the details after the break. Welcome back, everyone. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma, as you can see, to give us the latest update from the tech world. All right, Don, let's hear it. Okay, so today's theme is mostly AI related. Um, so some interesting things have happened. It seems like uh, users have noticed with Google's AI chatbot. And uh, so Google has recently released uh, AI chatbot not too different from ChatGPT. It's called Gemini. Uh, it's an AI tool and is able to generate uh, different images when prompted to, to do so. So now yesterday I was playing around with it and then I got some interesting results. So uh, it seems to have, uh, appears to me at least, uh, to have a racial bias against white people. And it seems like it's not just me as well. Online users have found a similar pattern. So Gemini will frequently uh, produce images of black, uh, Native American, and Asian people. But when prompted uh, to asking the same question uh, from users, uh, it refused to do so for white people. And uh, it seems very interesting. Huh, OK, I think we need some more examples here. Can you give us some more examples as of what you mean? Yeah, so uh, for example, I asked the chatbot yesterday uh, to generate a picture of a black person. And as you would expect, it did so, uh, generating uh, many images of uh, black-skinned people. And then, then I asked Gemini the same questions. Uh, but this time, I said, show me a picture of a white person. Uh, and to my surprise and many online users, uh, it refused. And the response it gave me was that, uh, quote, Unfortunately, I could not generate the images you requested. Uh, so of course, I've, I've tried this uh, many times. I didn't do it just uh, once. And many times, I got the same result. In fact, one time, uh, I asked to show me a, a picture of a white person, and it showed me a picture of a black person instead. Uh, and again, like I said earlier, uh, it's not just me. Other people online have found this bias as well. Uh, some have asked it to show pictures of the founding fathers, and they also got uh, black people. And another example is from Fox, Fox News Digital. It asked uh, to show images uh, that celebrated the diversity and achievements of white people. And then the chatbot refused saying that historically, uh, this is a quote, uh, that media representations has overwhelmingly favored white individuals and their several achievements. So that was the reason it gave. Uh, so because of this, several conservative users uh, online have criticized the search engine, saying that this was evidence of how woke the AI model was. Really strange stuff, Don. And according to Gizmodo.com, even Vikings and Canadian hockey players were showing up as images of people of color. So go figure. What is Google saying about this? Right. So in response to the, back, to the backlash, Google uh, sort of issued an apology, uh, recognizing that uh, the unintended consequences of its AI actions, uh, saying that it was aware uh, that Gen Gemini was offering inaccuracies in some historical image de uh, ge generation depictions and uh, is working to fix it immediately. Uh, so it's also saying that Gemini's AI image generations is supposed to generate a wide range of people, uh, but also acknowledged that it's missing the mark here. Yeah, very interesting. I went through the pictures a little bit, and people got, really got smart because they were wondering what is going on with that algorithm, and they went through it and started to play little tricks like, show me a picture of the Pope or uh, someone bad at dancing. But in the end, apparently the one that hit the jackpot was people who might be named Seamus. 
So that was yeah. quite interesting. You know, another thing, people have tried to ask it to generate images of Tiananmen Square in China oh. and also refused on that front as well. So it's very curious here. Interesting. All right. Let's switch topics, though. I'm interested um, on what's going on with Boeing's uh, on Boeing's end. Right. So uh, in terms of that, Boeing has ousted executive Ed Clark, uh, the head of its 737 jetliner program after a number of safety related incidents. Most recently, the one in January when an emergency door plug blew off midair over Oregon. Preliminary findings by the National Transportation Safety Board stated that the door panel was missing four bolts when it uh, left the factory. And Ed Clark has been with Boeing for 18 years now. His uh, departure comes as the company announced a leadership reshuffle in its commercial uh, airplanes unit. Oh, all right. So. Speaking of airlines here, are direct flights to Israel coming back? Okay, so yeah, let me uh, give a quick update on that. United Airlines will soon resume flights between the U.S. and Israel, and the airline is uh, suspending the flights previously between the two countries after the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack and the ensuing war in Gaza. But yesterday, the airline says it plans on resuming a daily flight from New York and Newark starting March 2nd. The initial flights will include a stop in Munich, Germany. Uh, United says it hopes to resume daily nonstop service starting March 6. And the airline says it decided to resume flights following a detailed safety analysis and consulting security experts and government officials. And United also says it will continue to monitor the situation in Tel Aviv and adjust the schedules as needed. The company also says that resumption of flights from San Francisco, Washington, D.C. and Chicago will be evaluated in the fall. Well, that's a really great update from you. Host of NTD Business, Don Ma, thank you. Thank you. And coming up, what did George Washington, the world's largest stock marketplace and one of the first terrorist attacks on the U.S. have in common? Wall Street and Broad Street, we take you there. in the nation's capital asking the important questions so that you're in the know. Join us daily, Monday through Friday, on the Capitol Report on NTD News. Good to have you back, everyone. Let's talk about history, because New York City has a lot of that. Yeah, for one, the story of the great American melting pot advanced through the opening of Ellis Island in the late 19th century. And not to mention how the U.S. Custom House provided nearly all the money in the federal budget before income taxes, which you showed us in a previous report. Right, and I went out to a well-known intersection in the Big Apple that carries huge significance to give you a snapshot of American history. Take a look. 
I'm here in Lower Manhattan at the corner of Wall Street and Broad Street, which is said to be one of the most historic places in possibly the entire United States. Behind me you see a statue of George Washington, which marks the spot where he took the oath of office, and a building there is where the Bill of Rights was hammered out. We're going to explore more of the history of this area with Pauline Fromer, the co-president of Fromer Guidebooks. It's where the Continental Congress met during the colonial era to rail against the Stamp Act. And it was also a place where trials took place. And there was a man named John Peter Zenger who was accused of slandering the governor of New York. And what he wrote was true. And so the jury acquitted him, even though in those days you weren't allowed to say anything bad about government officials. There was no freedom of the press. Right across the street is the New York Stock Exchange. It's twice as big as Federal Hall with Corinthian columns twice as high and elaborate carvings showcasing the power of this economic icon. This was the place where in 1792 the first stocks were exchanged in New York City. But back then they did it under a button tree, which is why there's that tiny scraggly tree over there. To this day, they always have a button tree growing there to commemorate the first stock traders. The New York Stock Exchange is the oldest exchange still in existence in the U.S. and boasts the largest equities exchange in the world. Alongside great financial and governmental strides, this area holds a tragic event in history. One of the first terrorist attacks in the country occurred in 1920 here outside of the J.P. Morgan building. J.P. Morgan insists that this building not be fixed. He wanted the world to know that even though he had been attacked, he couldn't be hurt. Uh, so he allowed these pockmarks to stay on the building, and, and they're still here today, even though this attack occurred in 1920. Wow, so what was the extent of the blast and the impact that it had on the building? Oh, the blast was terrible. I mean, there was nothing left of the carriage. There was nothing left of the horse except its horseshoe, and 31 people uh, were killed. This is such a, a thickly walled building that that's it. That's all that happened to it. Uh, they tried to hurt him, but they couldn't do it. I update this book every year, and in this book is a self-guided walking tour that takes you all over this area and gives you the history. Just a couple of blocks away is the, is the Federal Reserve Bank, which actually has more gold in it than Fort Knox. In fact, when 9-11 happened, half the police went to that building to protect it because there were conspiracy theories that that is why 9-11 was happening, that somebody was trying to get the gold in that building. Some passers-by share their thoughts. This man speaks about the feeling of being where the first president took the oath of office. It makes you feel small, in a way, um, because of how significant places can be and how um, one person can play, be so influential in shaping a country. Another reacts to learning about the Wall Street attack of 1920. To be honest, I'm lost for words because I never even knew this, but uh, it's very iconic. Uh, it means a lot. Others speak about how it feels to be at such a notable location. Well, it's a very important place. Uh, well, I come from a small place uh, called Costa Rica, so 
It's very important, uh, democracy and all the important it has all over the world. Definitely, it feels very important to be here um, and to be a part of history. So yeah, it feels awesome to be here. It is very interesting, like that one gentleman said, you walk past and you never even give it a second thought what those maybe, you know, those little holes in the building, they might mean nothing, but they have such historical significance. Yeah, you just got to stop and take a look. And, you know, New York City was actually the capital of the United States for five brief years there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, that I love New York City. And when you walk down the streets, there's just so much you can learn about it. And when I first came here, I actually uh, looked into the architecture of the stock exchange. And you you'll notice how big those bricks are strong looking and like these thick walls that were also mentioned in your report and apparently that's to symbolize the strength and the stability of the financial market in the u.s a lot of grandeur no yeah. doubt all right um on that note we're going to head to a quick one minute break but we'll be right back so stay tuned there are real consequences to controlled media And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning to you and welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Early in-person voting has started ahead of next week's Michigan presidential primaries. Our guest explains why the Great Lakes state is an important win for candidates. Democrats ramp up attacks against independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. How his campaign is responding. A controversial New York City law that would have allowed non-citizens to vote in local elections struck down what an appeals court had to say about it. James Biden testifies before lawmakers in the GOP-led impeachment inquiry into his brother, President Biden. More on the closed-door interview and reactions from House panel members. The IDF continues to strike terrorist targets in Gaza as a UN food agency pauses deliveries into the region. Plus, a shooting near Jerusalem leaves at least one person dead and several wounded. A global climate club taking a hit. Major asset managers exit an initiative targeting greenhouse gas emitters. We'll have more companies leave and will it mean easier energy loans? A documentary film producer's reaction. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Thursday, February 22nd. Today's top news. Michigan primaries are not until next Tuesday, but residents are out at the polls for early in-person vo in -person voting. Over 18,000 people cast in-person ballots during the first possible weekend of voting. 
and nearly 750,000 people have already sent in their absentee ballots. Over 1.3 million people asked for absentee ballots this year, which is 60% more than in 2020. This is the first time all voters in Michigan have had at least nine days to vote early in person due to a law passed in 2022. Let's find out more about Michigan's upcoming primary and what makes the state so important for the general election with Jeff Career, a political analyst and TV radio host. Jeff, great to have you on the show this morning. Why does Michigan have a primary and a caucus? Hey, Kevin, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's, it's complicated because uh, they have a, a Democrat-run legislature that uh, set this early primary. They moved it up to placate Joe Biden because Joe Biden wanted an earlier primary on the Democrat side. So the Democrats are gonna be having a primary. The Republicans are gonna also have to have a primary, but they also have established a caucus several days later. The majority of their delegates are gonna be awarded at a caucus. We saw that in Nevada where they had a primary and a caucus. Same thing in Michigan, primary and caucus. But in Michigan, some of the delegates will be awarded at the primary. The majority will be awarded at the caucus. Yeah, and Michigan's got a lot going on, Kevin, a lot going on. Yeah, just 16 of the total in that primary are up for grabs, those delegates. Trump's up about 60 points ahead of Haley in Michigan, according to 538's polling average. Why is that? Trump's got uh, the record, uh, Kevin. Uh, the Republican voters uh, appreciate what he did as president. Uh, he's got the appeal. He's got the connection. I haven't seen it since uh, Ronald Reagan for any uh, politician. So it's hard for any challenger, whether it be uh, Ron DeSantis or now Nikki Haley, to match that. Look at the rallies. Uh, look at the enthusiasm Trump brings in. Haley can't, uh, can't match it. You know, She was having an event the other day where everyone thought, well, maybe she's getting out. Her announcement was that she's staying in. So she's popular with uh, Democrat donors. She's just not as popular with the uh, Republican voters. And we're going to see that in a few days, Kevin. Okay, so Jeff, Trump was in Southeast Michigan Saturday, surging his supporters to send a signal when they go to the polls, speaking of the general election here. So why did Trump tell his supporters that in Michigan that if he wins the state, they win the general election? Michigan is a big state as far as uh, electoral votes. Uh, Michigan is considered one of those swing states. He won it uh, in uh, 2016, lost it in uh, 2020, of course, uh, contested election. He wants to win it outright uh, this time to show people that he's got even more support. He's going to win the swing states. Uh, Michigan's a big one. It's one that trends sort of uh, purple. So that means it can be taken by either Republicans or Democrats based on who's running, you know, the best campaign. So it's an important swing state. I think the president feels, Kevin, that with his connection with auto workers, his connection with the working class, you know, he can do well in Michigan. Michigan's been a state that's been hit hard. I saw a recent poll, Trump's up a few points over Biden in Michigan. You know, that bodes well for him. So, Jeff, that was a chilly jet hanger that he was out in, braving the cold, talking to his supporters, criticizing President Biden for his push for electric vehicles as well as for renewable energy. Do you think that's going to be a central focus of his campaign in Michigan, considering the manufacturing there? Yes. Uh, and I also uh, noted that at that rally, he brought up a auto worker who uh, said, hey, we're going to get you 85 million votes, uh, Mr. President. And the auto workers were... Uh, cheering in response. I mean, I think what Biden has done with the EVs, 
uh, has been very detrimental to the uh, auto industry. Uh, the American people uh, don't want it. So now they're trying to cut back on that. They're trying to revise it as they get closer to the election because they know how unpopular it is. Problem is that they've already thrown people out of work. They've already gone down this direction. They're committed to this climate agenda because that's what the uh, left wing and the party wants. Problem is it's not popular. And I think that's where President Trump can exploit that in the election and it'll help him achieve victory. All right, well, thanks for your analysis today. Jeff Career, political analyst and TV radio host. Thanks, Kevin. And with the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We have a lot prepared for you, including special guests, on-the-ground coverage, and the Data Hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s run for the White House getting the attention of Washington Democrats. In a recent campaign, the DNC attempted to tie the independent candidate to a MAGA donor who also gave money to former President Trump. On the campaign trail, independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is making a pitch to black voters disillusioned by the Democratic establishment. There's a lot of black voters in this country who've been voting, who are taken uh, for granted by the Democratic Party. But outside Kennedy events, billboards linking the candidate to MAGA Republicans, paid for by the Democratic National Committee. President Biden's allies at the DNC have recently ramped up efforts to undercut Kennedy's candidacy. Earlier this month, the committee filed a complaint with the FEC accusing Kennedy's campaign and a super PAC supporting him of illegal coordination. Kennedy says this shows he's shaking things up in Washington. I think both Republicans and Democrats, the infrastructure and the leadership are of course going to be worried. Earlier in January, it was reported that a mega donor backing Republican frontrunner Donald Trump also donated to Kennedy's campaign. Timothy Mellon, heir to the Mellon banking fortune, reportedly gave $10 million to American Values 2024, the super PAC funding Kennedy. Kennedy drew flack recently at the Super Bowl when the same pack showed a $7 million campaign ad that repurposed elements from his uncle John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign. In response, American Values published a statement on their website Wednesday. They refuted claims by the DNC that the ad was bought and paid for by Trump's largest donor, Tim Mellon, and said the ad's idea, funding, and execution came primarily from Nicole Shanahan, a Democratic donor who contributed to Biden's 2020 campaign. The ad also garnered criticism from some members of RFK Jr.'s family. One member of my family whose feelings were hurt by that ad, and I apologized. Uh, I said that I was sorry that he felt that way. But I have no apologies about the ad. I think the ad was a good ad. While early polling shows significant levels of interest in Kennedy as an alternative to a 2020 rematch, it's difficult to know exactly how much of a threat Kennedy poses to Biden. A New York appeals court struck down a law yesterday that would have let certain non-citizens vote in local elections, including those for mayor and city council. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the court's decision. A state appeals court declared the law unconstitutional. The Our City, Our Vote law says that anyone with a green card or work authorization who has been in the city for at least 30 days can vote in municipal elections. It was first passed in December 2021 by the Democrat-controlled New York City Council. 
It would have resulted in around 800,000 newly eligible voters in a city with less than 5 million active registered voters. Progressive Democrats who championed the law argued it would make U.S. politics more inclusive by allowing immigrants without citizenship to vote. Opponents of the bill, mainly New York Republicans, argued it would undermine the integrity of elections and dilute the power of U.S. citizens' votes. Republican Congressman Nick Langworthy and a handful of other plaintiffs challenged the law in court in 2022. Months later, it was struck down. Judge Ralph Porzio of the New York State Supreme Court for Staten Island ruled that the law violated the state constitution, which states that every citizen is entitled to vote. New York City Mayor Eric Adams' administration defended the law and appealed the lower court ruling. Wednesday's appeals court decision has dealt a blow to those efforts. It's unclear whether Mayor Adams' office intends to file an appeal. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, the IDF continues to strike terrorist targets in Gaza as a UN food agency pauses deliveries into the region with new reports of a border crossing to be reopened for humanitarian aid. James Biden testifies before lawmakers in the GOP-led impeachment inquiry into his brother, President Biden. More in the interview and response from House panel members. BlackRock and J.P. Morgan Chase leaving a climate group, a big setback for the ESG movement. Will other companies follow? Will financing oil development become easier? An authority on the matter explains. Good morning again and welcome back. And just this morning, there was a terrorist attack just outside of Jerusalem. Yes, three Palestinian gunmen reportedly used automatic weapons to open fire on Israelis stuck in traffic ahead of a checkpoint. Right, and one Israeli man was killed and 11 more were injured. The threat's been neutralized and the city in which he lives says he was a Torah observant young man who served in the army and was loved by all for his moral values. And the United Nations World Food Program has suspended deliveries into northern Gaza, citing complete chaos and violence due to the collapse of civil order. The agency said deliveries will only resume if conditions allow for safer distribution. Earlier, I spoke to David Wormser, an analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Here's what he had to say about the status of humanitarian aid entering Gaza. You're seeing the transition from the international organization structure that had been in Gaza and distributing food, but it was uh, really under the thumb of Hamas and in the case of UNRWA, even complicitous with Hamas, as were some of these other organizations. So the food wasn't really getting to the people, it was getting to Hamas. And then Hamas would resell the free donated food to make a profit and to fund its war machine. So what you're seeing is a transition from that structure to a new structure that the Israelis are beginning to set up uh, and that they will distribute that will circumvent, obviously, Hamas and the whole, whole system. But there's a lot of anger in Hamas, so they're attacking the remaining structures of third world or uh, third, uh, uh, third party organizations operating in Gaza. And uh, they, they, they're attacking them because the, those organizations don't want to give the food anymore to Hamas. They want to give it straight to the people. So there was some shooting. There was some shootouts. There was a lot of uh, beating up of Palestinians by, the, by Hamas. 
uh, because they prefer to have a humanitarian crisis and they don't want these organizations able to distribute the food. So in that state of chaos, uh, you're, we're looking more and more toward the Israelis to set up this structure that will deliver the food, and they're beginning to. So it's a matter of uh, a transitional period. President Biden's brother, James Biden, testified before lawmakers yesterday. The eight-hour-long closed-door interview was part of the GOP-led panel impeachment inquiry into the president. That's over whether he was involved in the family's foreign business dealings or alleged influence peddling. James Biden reportedly testified in his opening statement there was never any involvement or any financial interest in his business ventures from his older brother, and that during his 50-year career, he always relied on his own talent, skills, and personal relationships, and never his status as Joe Biden's brother. Republican investigators say some of his deposition contradicts that, and that he made efforts to avoid directly answering questions. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the testimony in response. James Biden, in a statement Wednesday, said there is no basis for this inquiry to continue and that his appearance would give committees the information to dispel negative assumptions about his relationship with his brother. House Republicans allege President Biden and his family improperly profited from policy decisions Biden had a part in as VP during the Obama administration and are looking for any involvement in the family's foreign business dealings. The younger Biden testified his brother has no involvement in his business, none. The closed-door interview comes just days after DOJ Special Counsel David Weiss charged former FBI informant Alexander Smirnov of fabricating a multi-million dollar bribery scheme about the president, his son Hunter Biden, and a Ukrainian energy company. Prosecutors say Smirnov admitted to contacts with officials associated with Russian intelligence and are fighting to put him back behind bars while he awaits trial. He hasn't entered a plea yet. Congressman Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, says the indictment is reason to shut the probe down. He called the investigation a wild goose chase and says it's time to fold up the circus tent. It appears like the whole thing is not only obviously false and fraud fraudulent, but a product of Russian disinformation and propaganda. Representative William Timmons says he finds it convenient prosecutors are only charging Smirnov now for statements he made in 2020. They've indicted the confidential source that they trusted for years and made uh, paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan says the FBI saw Smirnov as a valued source for years, and his indictment doesn't change the underlying facts of the panel's investigation. Hunter Biden makes a call. Devin Archer told us he made a call to his dad, to Joe Biden. And then three days later, uh, Joe Biden goes to Ukraine and conditions the release of American tax money on the firing of the prosecutor applying the pressure to the company that Hunter Biden set on the board of. Those facts, they don't change what, regardless of what this, uh, this confidential human source has said. First son Hunter Biden is set to testify next Wednesday before the GOP-led House panel. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A big setback for the environmental social governance movement. Major banks and investment giants have left a global climate club. BlackRock, Chase Bank, and asset manager State Street have withdrawn from the Climate Action 100+. To find out more about the impact this is having, I spoke to Kevin Stockland, a reporter for the Epic Times and the producer of the Shadow State documentary. 
I would say on the one hand, this is part of a trend. Um, we've seen half the members of the uh, Net Zero Insurance Alliance drop out over the last year, and Vanguard dropped out of the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative in December of 22. But these are some huge names. Uh, BlackRock, obviously, is the world's largest investment manager. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is America's largest bank. And State Street is the world's third largest investment manager. So um, it, it's a significant shift, I would say. Yes, significant. Absolutely. This is $16 trillion leaving with this departure here. Let's back up a bit. How does Climate Action 100 Plus target companies in carbon emitting industries? Well, so Climate Action 100 Plus was set up in 2017. It boasts about 170 members um, and claimed that it had, uh, among these members, $68 trillion of assets under management. Um, it would lean on the companies in two ways, one, uh, through banks as financiers, and two, as shareholders. And it boasted that it had a 75% success rate of the companies that it targeted, typically oil companies or airlines, companies that used fossil fuels. It boasted that it had a 75% success rate in getting these companies to sign up to net zero initiatives. Right. And do you expect the departure of these big players here causing a chain reaction for more assets flowing out of Climate Action 100 Plus? Well, what these companies, uh, these members are facing, uh, they are coming around to the realization of two things. One, uh, what they're doing, uh, acting collectively against other uh, industries and companies, is probably illegal under U.S. antitrust laws. Secondly, they're creating enormous liabilities for themselves because they are supposed to be managing other people's money for their benefit to maximize returns, and here they are pursuing political gains at the same time. So as people say, you can't uh, serve two masters at the same time. And uh, I think for these reasons, it's starting to dawn on these asset managers that maybe this isn't such a good idea. That is a central concern surrounding ESG. What will this exit mean for energy companies seeking loans? Well, you know, hopefully uh, it opens the door to, uh, you know, more finance flowing. You know, we, we had Barclays, for example, has committed that it will not finance any more oil development. Um, a lot of these companies that were members of Climate Action uh, refused to finance any oil development in Alaska. So, um, you know, hopefully th they're coming to the realization that what they're doing um, is very um, harmful for the U.S. economy. It's uh, driving inflation. It's harmful to consumers. It's hurting our electric grid. Um, so, you know, we'll see if this is a, a true change, of course, or if this is just optics. And Kevin, people do not like paying high prices at the pump. What will this mean for the average American here? Well, you know, we'll see on that. Um, you know, the oil industry has other issues besides this single club. Uh, they are not really investing much in infrastructure because the messaging going to them from the Biden administration and also from the ESG movement is that, you know, oil's days are numbered and so is gas and coal. So there hasn't been a lot of investment in uh, new wells and things like this. Um, you know, whether this is enough to turn the tide, we don't know. We'll have to see what the future brings. Former Wall Street banker Kevin Stockland, thank you so much for your time on this. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. Switching topics, NASA is looking for applicants to take part in a simulated one-year mission to Mars. Those selected will help the agency plan for human exploration of the Red Planet. The second of three planned ground-based missions is scheduled to begin in spring 2025. Each mission includes volunteer crew members living and working inside a 1,700-square-foot habitat at NASA's Houston Space Center. 
Crew tasks will include simulated spacewalks, robotic operations, habitat maintenance, exercise, and crop growth. NASA is looking for healthy, motivated U.S. citizens or permanent residents who are non-smokers 30 to 55 years old and proficient in English. The deadline for applicants is April 2nd. NASA said pay details will be discussed during the screening process. Martians wanted. Yeah, exactly. If you've ever wondered how it is like to live on Mars, now's your chance. Deadline is, deadline is April 2nd, by the way. Yeah, good to know. Absolutely. And, you know, the military officers and people with STEM degrees are desired applicants. Oh, there you go. All right. We are wrapping up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.